This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Ease Hegler. This episode, we're going to dig into the intersections between climate and media and climate and politics. And we have a very special guest along to help us do just that. That's right. We have the perfect person to talk about this, Kate Aronoff. She's one of the leading climate and politics journalists. And if you're not reading her work over at The New Republic, you should go and fix that. <laughs> yeah, she's also the co-host of the Hot and Bothered podcast, which I had the pleasure of being on earlier in quarantine. I Yeah, I, I don't actually know when that happened <laughs> because time is not really a tangible reality. Mm, it's nope. more of like a concept that exists in poetry books. And <laughs> I understand that some people still have watches and clocks, and I don't understand how that works, but... Anyway, yeah, she's got a great other podcast, too. Yes. <laughs> Some of the things that we'll get into with Kate are how defunding the police is good for climate, why media outlets are remiss to talk about race and climate in the same breath, and degrowth and eco-modernism. What are those? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Let's find out. Um, yeah, and we talk about the potential death of the climate sad boy, which is a term that Kate coined just last year. And we're going to learn all about what that is and why you're not really seeing that much of them anymore. That's right. All right. Ready to get into it? Yep. It's time to talk about climate. Welcome to the show, Kate. I'm so excited to be here. First question. How did you get into journalism and specifically into climate journalism? Yeah, I came to climate stuff before before journalism. Uh, in college, I worked on something called the Fossil Fuel Divestment Campaign, which folks might be familiar with, uh, to get mm -hmm. universities to take their endowments out of fossil fuels. And so I did that for four years in, in college, started something called the Fossil Fuel Divestment Student Network, and had done like a lot of comms work through that. So writing op-eds, doing kind of media, writing tweets and, and things like that for organizational accounts. And decided after college that I, I uh, liked doing that work and, and was better at that than I was at organizing, which is really hard, as folks may also, mm -hmm. may also know. Uh, and so wanted to write about things that I wasn't directly working on. And so uh, started mostly writing about social movements. And then mm -hmm. slowly through being fortunate enough to get uh, jobs in journalism, which are, you know, sadly not forthcoming, yeah. Yeah. I migrated into doing more kind of proper climate reporting, focusing on movements and, and kind of people who were fighting things like fossil fuel infrastructure, 
and then then kind of came to came to more sort of policy stuff and, and kind of everything everything in in between and so now I'm now I'm a full-time journalist which is is nice to be able to say at the New Republic we at the New Republic mentioned. yes right yeah. yes Okay, I'm curious about whether, because you do often write about how policy gets built around the climate issue. So I wonder if you consider yourself a climate journalist or a politics journalist, and really like whether you think there's a difference between the two, and if so, kind of how you would define that. Yeah, it's funny. My, my official title at the New Republic is staff writer, and I work on the climate beat, but that ends up just going into a lot of different directions in part because mm-hmm. climate change is ubiquitous, right? I mean, I don't think there's mm-hmm. a there's a piece of, of policy that isn't isn't affected by it. Uh, and I work a lot in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and, and that, you know, is bound up in all all sorts of things, whether that's finance or monetary policy, uh, trade and you know, I am interested in, in sort of questions of political economy <laughs> that stems from looking looking a lot at the fossil fuel industry uh, in large part. So, yeah, I don't. I guess I guess I would call myself a, a climate a climate journalist insofar as climate is 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 a lot of things um, and and not mm-hmm. you know I, I don't actually spend too much time you know looking at the latest scientific reports necessarily or even. What's happening at the EPA, which which some other reporters have done really, really great coverage on. Um, but I, yeah, kind of kind of look at where you know institutions, mostly institutions in the United States, are sort of butting up against against the climate and, and having a big impact on that. And I, I think that can go uh, a lot of places that wouldn't yeah. tend to be in the climate beat. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> I, I like the title of staff writer because it's, it's big enough to, to give me a lot of, uh, a lot of leeway. Yeah. Yeah. I keep going back and forth on this about like, you know, there's been sort of, I don't know, I think there's been maybe like three cycles in media of like, having climate be a super separate thing, and then integrating it and then like, realizing that that is not working and like having a climate vertical again and like going back and forth on that. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the solution really is just to have more either politics reporters or sort of general assignment reporters that do have some kind of background in climate because it does, it crosses into everything. Yeah. When Amy says vertical, she means section. Yes. That's what a vertical is. I've learned that recently. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, my media speak. Yeah. <laughs> the name of but, the, yeah. the name of my vertical, the vertical I work on at the New Republic is Apocalypse Soon. So <laughs> that means Pay many section. different things. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, it does seem like folks who have been in tune on like climate for a long time really can't see it as um, this intersecting kind of thing, which is like really, really interesting to me um, because it is a story that touches on every little thing. But I think that like people can't see it outside of the technicalities of it, out of the pol- outside of the policies of it. Um, I get this a lot as a writer, like people see me as a climate writer and they're like, oh, you must want to analyze this policy and write an article about it. And like, that is not even close to anything I've ever written before. I don't know why you would think. Actually, that's a good, uh, that's a good lead in to talk about um, this, this third question we wanted to ask you, which is if you could change one thing about the narrative's 
surrounding climate change, what would it be? You could have more than one if you feel really strongly about more than one. I was going to say, just, <laughs> just one is hard. That's I know. So. <laughs> That's top really three. Yeah. Top three. Top three. I think the biggest one for me would be, well, actually, I mean, just, you know, as, as, as you're both mentioning, is, is just how siloed it is in that, you know, if, I think climate politics just gets considered the standalone topic that is about parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, um, about, you know, cap and trade laws or whatever's happening in Washington. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of the problem in, in, in media, which, which maybe we can talk a little bit more about is that people really get sort of in their, in their beats. And so it can be hard to see kind of bigger stories and just really consider the problem and its whole complexity, which is this like hugely messy, complicated thing that maps onto people's lives and all of these um, messy, complicated and interesting ways. Uh, and so I don't think it goes so far as, as saying we shouldn't write climate stories, right? But but I think, you know, just looking at all of the ways in which climate is already in so many in so many other stories. And, you know, it's it's hard for me to say what concretely that that would look like. But yeah, I mean I think just just recognizing that that every, you know, more stories than not are climate stories. I'd be hard pressed to think of a story that's not a climate story. Yeah. You know, it's like it even when climate is not mentioned, it's like a silent P at the beginning of a word, like it's there, <laughs> just not pronouncing it. You know, maybe if, if you're writing about like the Great British Bake Off or something. Like... Oh, no, because there were quite a few episodes where they couldn't cook in the tent because it was too oh hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what about like access no, to certain ingredients, for example? I mean, it's a this is true. Exactly. This is true. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 climate. I can. That's like my dinner party trick, and it's probably why I stopped getting invited to dinner to a lot of (laughs) pre-COVID dinner parties. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and then you know you find your climate people, and like everybody's talking. Yeah, Yeah, but no, before that, people would be like, "Oh fuck, here she comes again." (laughs) Sounds Um, like we might have a similar presence at dinner parties. (laughs) Yeah. Enjoy that butter. It's the last of it. You know, actually, that's something that's been bugging me lately is like, because I also, I too am like the uh, harbinger of death at dinner parties. (laughs) 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 But it's been really bugging me that like, there's this idea, I was talking to um, Mary about this just the other day, there's this idea that like, if you talk about the problems or like, you know, sort of the historic reasons that we haven't acted on climate, then it's like you're kind of accused of being too negative or um, mm-hmm. not focusing on the solutions and whatever. And mm-hmm. to me, I feel like, you know, understanding the problem is part of the solution and it's like social change and policy change are, are uh, like amongst the biggest solutions that we need. So I don't, I don't get that whole idea. <laughs> I don't know. Right. It, it almost always comes from people who have never been through therapy, you know, cause like, you know, it's like people who are new to therapy are always like, all right, fix me up doc. Give me the drug. Give me the, like the little yeah. coping mechanism or whatever. It's like, Bitch, sit on the couch. You got some shit to unpack. Need to weed through this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like you are way more fucked up than you think. That's true that there's this like huge I actually see it as a somewhat um kind of 
I don't know, like patriarchal or, or like male take mm-hmm. to that. It's like, Oh, like I'm like a, that one person is going to solve the problem and that one technology, right. Right. Or one like innovation is going to be the, the thing. Um, and like, right. Yeah. Everybody wants the quick fix. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There isn't a quick fix. I think this was not a quick problem. Yeah. yeah. I think if, if there were another narrative about, about climate change, I'd want to, I would want to change. It would be just issuing a, a blanket ban on stories about this being the solution uh, yes. to mm-hmm. climate change. Yeah. If I were yeah. if I were media dictator, um, yeah. I think I would mm-hmm. I would do that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have aspirations on media dictatorship, Kate? Definitely not. Definitely not. But you know, I think standards are helpful. <laughs> I mean, you could tell us. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's not the the job I want in our. Uh, you know in the command and control future. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I, I don't necessarily want that job either, but I do want Andrew Sullivan's job. Oh, yes. Yes. I agree. I wholeheartedly support that. I mean, we talked about this a lot that, you know, climate is as much a, a power problem or a social problem as it is a science and technology problem, if not more. And, uh, you know, we continue to see pretty often political reporting not reflecting that, like really sticking to it's about technology and the energy sources that we'll use. Um, so I'm, I'm curious just kind of what you think about that. And then we're going to make you read from some of your own work, which does a fantastic job of, of not forgetting that there are these like, you know, power dynamics at play in, uh, in the political sphere on climate. Um, but yeah, like, what do you think about how uh, political reporting in general kind of tends to paint uh, the climate problem? Yeah, I, th- I started mentioning this a little bit before, but I think a lot of this comes down to just some really boring factors about what it's like to work in a media organization. And, that, you know, the, the New York Times, for instance, has a climate desk, right? It, you know, the people who work on the politics desk don't necessarily understand understand climate change um editors don't necessarily get it and i think folks who you know are reporting on climate aren't encouraged to like to to bring in other sources and 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 i think you know every beat has its sort of idiosyncrasies but i think the the range of sources that people are encouraged to talk to as sort of climate reporters proper, I think, can make that sort of understanding harder. So, you know, you see a lot of quotes, for instance, in mainstream outlets, whether it's the Washington Post or, you know, other other places, all of which, you know, I think I think most outlets have great climate workers on, on staff. And I just want to, mm-hmm. you know, want to say that. But um, a, a lot of the sources that people call up are, A, the people who are easy to talk to on short notice. Um, because people have deadlines. And so, you know, often that's people at think tanks, that's folks who are based in DC or politicians or whatever. And, um, you know, it's not always as easy, depending on what your kind of network of sources is, to talk to people in movements, for instance, to talk to people who are living on the front lines of climate change or fence line with fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, that is 
tough work that takes time, that takes resources to, you know, build relationships and, and, and source relationships with people. Um, and that can be hard in, in, uh, in a quick news cycle. Um, and, you know, as is the case with a lot of sort of climate desks in, uh, when, when you're, you know, one of very few reporters who, who are doing that and, and, you know, are need to produce stories every so often. So, Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the the sort of media part of it. I think there's there's a bigger um there's a bigger question of just, you know, the the trajectory of of climate politics in the last 30 years, um which is a a, a thornier one, I think. Um which is that, you know, the the sort of mainstream policy conversation where uh where a lot of reporters tend tend to focus, and, and where you know editors in particular would like be able to focus at, at, at big outlets, is uh, a conversation that happens almost entirely in the Beltway. It happens almost entirely in Washington, um, and is not you know has its own sort of weird look at power dynamics. Um, but that is just like can be so sort of blinkered about like which congressman is talking to which think tank is talking to who in the White House about, you know, X right into or amendment to a certain bill. And that, you know, is not, I think that's a part of politics, but I don't think that's, that's politics proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it's not, you know, I don't think a, a holistic understanding of all of the crazy power dynamics that, that play into the fossil fuel industry. And, yeah. you know, there's a, a reluctance to talk about funding, um, to talk about kind of like, you know, not just lobbying and, and, and political donations, but also like who funds the think tanks right. that uh, that people are going to for for their sources. Which you know, it, I think drilled has, has been you know great a great look at, at some of those dynamics, mm-hmm. um, but can get left out of you know whatever twelve hundred word story that people have to file right. by right by a certain right. time. I actually I I think... I've been thinking about the think tank thing a lot lately, and just like how problematic that whole system is, and like how little value it actually provides to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Mary, you were going to say something. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was, um, I'm excited to, to have Kate read from two pieces that I think um, really touch on something that I think is kind of unspoken in the climate political landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that both parties are kind of in an identity crisis, it feels yeah. like. Um, one is that like on the democratic side, it sort of feels like we've seen this flurry of climate plans come out. Um, and there's just all of this praise every single time I see an article about one of them, it's like, this is the most progressive climate policy in history, but there's a big thing that, uh, that sort of analysis kind of misses. Um, and the other is that like the GOP or the right wing is kind of coming around to accepting climate change and that is not necessarily a good thing. So um, I'll stop there and let Kate read these two select excerpts. Uh, The first piece is the limits of Democrats' climate progress. Plans are better than they were. The plans are not enough. What are the plans for? Though it's ostensibly my job to analyze these kinds of climate plans on their own terms, the whole exercise is starting to feel pretty pointless. Documents like the task force recommendations, like presidential campaign platforms, or the House Committee on the Climate Crisis Report really only indicate where we're starting from. 
So far, all the plans on offer will likely produce warming greater than 2 degrees Celsius, and that's a relatively rosy scenario. While projected deaths are admittedly trickier to calculate than recorded deaths, let's judge climate policies by how many people they'll kill anywhere based on our best scientific understanding of the problem. Let's not judge them based on the progress they show compared to more obviously inadequate plans or, for the love of God, by how much they'll cost. Even in cold and conservative economic terms, the cost of 2.5 or 3 degrees of warming will outstrip the cost of preventing it by tens of trillions of dollars. Every person who dies of a climate fuel disaster is a sign of failure of policymakers' ability to mitigate rising temperatures and adapt to the hotter world that past failures have made inevitable. Next piece is the threat of a GOP that accepts climate change. But even if some kind of business-friendly climate action does emerge from a post-Trump Republican Party, there's no reason to think it wouldn't still involve support for polluters trying to find paths to a larger profit, nor would a shift in messaging on climate cause the party to abandon its overarching commitments. Nor would a shift in messaging on climate cause the party to abandon its other overarching commitments. With its travel bans and hardened borders ready to halt refugees fleeing heat, drought, and disaster, the GOP is already writing a form of climate policy, even if it would never call it that. Should it start to openly embrace something like climate action, the party would almost certainly retain the racism and xenophobia that has animated it for decades, fusing them into green policies far from what progressive climate activists might hope for. Yeah, that's so good. I know yeah. I've been I've been really thinking a lot lately about how the term um, climate denier or like climate denial like isn't doesn't include enough of these kinds of things, you know, like we've mm-hmm. talked a lot on this show about um, the climate realists and, and like this, you know, uh, this idea that like, yeah, a lot of far right wing people totally accept that climate change is happening, but their action on it will be to consolidate their power and wealth. And that, that is also a climate action, right? It's just not the one that we right. want. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that they're already yeah. doing it, right? Like right. the border wall exactly. is def- is totally mm-hmm. a climate plan. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. like closings of borders are totally a climate plan. Right. Um, yeah. It, and it it's so of, American. It's like so this like weird frame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't exist anywhere else on earth. Yeah. You Maybe had like an, Australia, but. Yeah. You had another piece that was like the Democrats climate plan is weirdly isolationist mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. about how even on the left, um, so to speak, like they are still not thinking about the rest of the world because you can't just like solve climate change in one country and not in another. Like that's not solving climate change. It's just American exceptionalism gone wild. Yeah. It's. Truly insane. Yeah. Um, It is interesting to me that I think that the moderate, um, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see, like the moderate (laughs) idea or conversation around climate change, I'm not even so sure if it's moderate or if it's like stuck in the past by 20 years. Um, Because they don't, Mm -hmm. I don't see how you're paying attention today and don't see that the the Republican Party is coming around to climate change, and that that doesn't mean something good. Well, and that, um, that and that, I mean, that is mm-hmm. literally where we were in 1991, and like, right? I mean, it's like it's probably a little bit behind where we were in 1991. You know, so like this right. idea that that is somehow progress is really sad. And the also, I'm really interested in this idea about the the Democrats' climate progress always being like 
oh, well, this is so much more advanced than it was uh, in 2016. But you know what else is more advanced? Climate change. <laughs> like, way more advanced, buddy. Yes. Like, so what? Like, it, it's just like, imagine a doctor treating you for, like, a horrible disease five years too late and starting the, the process of treating you where they should have started it five years yeah. ago. Yeah. Are you going to be happy with that doctor? Are you going to feel like that's a death sentence? Mm-hmm. I think and not even actually starting, just, you know, saying it. they have this great treatment plan. <laughs> exactly. Failing to, to actually treat you. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I think, I don't know, there, there's the sort of like silo question that, that um, we got into earlier. But I also just think like the fluency of climate folks on racism and xenophobia is has just on mainstream climate folks I'll, I'll i'll say in particular um is really you know doing a lot of doing a lot of catching up um to where you know environmental justice folks have been for a while to where climate justice folks have been for a while um but i think for for a lot of folks there's a sort of like you know it, there's still too many steps <laughs> to 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 have them be able to make that like a a natural response right to 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 think about these two things in the same breath um that thankfully you know i think uh, more people are are getting comfortable with This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Media outlets. 
seem to be sort of afraid of talking about race and climate at the same time. Afraid and also just generally bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think maybe that's why they're afraid. Yeah. So it kind of seems like, um, yeah, editors are kind of missing the point that these two are connected. Um, It was really interesting on our last, uh, one of our last shows, we had Kendra Louis-Pierre on from the the New York Times, and she said something that I thought was really interesting, which was that both climate and race are seen as activist issues. And if you put Mm -hmm. them together, then that's just too much activism. (laughs) Like, what are you trying to do here? Um, I I wonder if you have kind of come up against that, because um, especially in this, um, since late May, um, when all of these uprisings started coming about, I kind of feel like a lot of climate journalists were like, again, not the time, <laughs> you know, kind of like the mm-hmm. way we did with COVID. Like it, it kind of takes the climate community a while to figure out how to talk about the intersections and how to talk about climate in conjunction with another crisis, which is concerning because it's going to keep intersecting with other crises. Right. Like that's never not going to be a thing that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when it came around to, you know, the George Floyd protest and Breonna Taylor and, and Ahmed Arbery, um, everybody was kind of like, maybe we should cool it with the climate talk now. Whereas I noticed in your work, you absolutely didn't miss a beat. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you came up against any of that, like, wait a minute, you should not talk about this right now. I thankfully didn't, um, which is, you know, probably just a credit to um, to my editors who are were very happy to have me have me write um, pieces like that pretty pretty soon after. But yeah, I mean, I think there just like so so much of the language around race and climate is so limited. I think a lot of it when it does come up, which is not enough tends to be the sort of story of disparity, right? Is that, you know, that's absolutely true. That's, that's, you know, undeniably true, which is that um, people of color and black folks are more affected by climate change, by environmental racism, um, by pollution, you know, all of the sort of footprints of of the fossil fuel industry. And I I think there's a little bit of of a hesitation to talk about extraction a little more generally um and that our economy is built on extraction broadly right and 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 still is in 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 so many ways of fossil fuels of of labor um of people and and that you know is is what has kept our economy going and i don't i think that can get it can sound a little bit esoteric but i think there are just real um sort of consequences that come up in in demands like defund the police which is that we have budgets which are written to criminalize black and brown folks and those budgets are not uh are not being devoted toward toward climate action if you know 50% of 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 the city um of the city's spending is, is going toward police that is not money which is going you know toward toward climate adaptation and and resilience and mitigation and and all those things and so right. i just think there's like a it's that can be a, a sort of hard step to make if you know there isn't some kind of baseline understanding of political economy. Yeah, for sure. I I also think it's interesting that people um, kind of feel like race and climate need to be separate when the most successful climate champions in office who ran their whole campaigns on like Green New Deals are generally people of color 
and generally uh, talk about climate and race seam- seamlessly and interconnectedly. I'm thinking of like Charles Booker mm-hmm. and Jamal Bowman and AOC, all of whom you've mm-hmm. covered. Um, and like that, that's what gets people energized. And it's, it's weird to me because when I hear people saying that they need to be separate or discussed separately, um, I hear them saying that basically they think black people are too dumb to understand climate change. You know, mm-hmm. like we can't understand the idea of having more than one crisis at a time. Meanwhile, our literal entire existence has always been dealing with more than one crisis at a time. We've never had the luxury to deal with one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I will just like pay homage to a piece that you wrote in The New Republic about Jamal Bowman and the democratic insurgency that could help save the planet about his campaign. Um, and also a piece from Darna Noor and Earther about the Tuesday primaries that you didn't hear about, but were a big deal for the Green New Deal. And that was about like even the people who weren't going to Washington, like state level mm-hmm. houses, people ran on a Green New Deal. And what she was saying I thought was really interesting is that um, these candidates, because the Green New Deal is so vague, um, so to speak, or you could say that it's just open, uh, people were able to interpret the Green New Deal to mean whatever... Uh, would be best for the environment or for environmental justice in their exact community. So like Charles Booker interpreted it to be more about coal um, because he's Mm -hmm. in Kentucky Um, and Mm -hmm. other people, you know, I think somebody in Texas interpreted it to be more about Mm -hmm. like the oil rigs. Um, So that actually, she was saying that that shows the power of the green new deal as opposed to like, it's been framed as this um, as a weakness um, because it isn't as well defined. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> and and I, I think you know the the way, especially that you know, Jamal Bowman and 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 you know AOC talk about it. It it just it's not complicated, right? It's like I, I just think of you know, um, AOC talking about her grandfather who died in Hurricane Maria, mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, his home lost power, right? right? I mean, that's so many things that I think, you know, can get <laughs> overcomplicated. And, you know, if you were to lay it out on paper, it would be like four different issues across four different beats. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just all, it all comes together in ways that are, are, you know, very easy to understand if you're actually experiencing them. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Honestly, are just, yeah, I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is just straight up racism, you know, like people are mm-hmm. afraid of black people. And afraid of like having a real conversation with black people like they're they think that we're angry. They think that we're going to yell at them if they talk if, you know, you come and talk to us about climate change, Um, which, you know, that might happen if you show up and say, well, actually, you shouldn't be worried about police violence. You should be worried about climate change instead. Like if you go there, yeah, you're probably going to piss some people off. That's kind of not cute. (laughs) So, yeah, just don't do that. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's just like reporting, right? It's like, go t- go talk to people. I mean, that is yeah. the job of a yes. reporter. And how I've learned most of what I know. And mm-hmm. it's just so, I feel grateful to get to do that. I feel yeah, like that like gets into, my you know, yeah. something we were talking about with Kendra last time as well, um, about the differences between neutrality and objectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, that there, that what we've often called objectivity has just been a way to cow people into upholding the status quo yeah um and just like pretending that you don't have a perspective is is bullshit right right totally yeah yeah 
and yeah, and not to get like, uh, I don't, I didn't come into this podcast wanting to quote Gramsci, but um, <laughs> like Antonio Gramsci, Marxist oh, yes, yes. scholar. From, oh, okay. Um, right, but right. like hegemony is a real thing, right? Like we, you know, the the way that we talk about certain things is is pre defined mm-hmm. and that's not apolitical that's just the politics that are around us mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if it falls within that you know it's fine but that's that's still politics it's still ideology it just happens to be the one that's that's in power right exactly A really good way to talk about this, like the intersections between race and climate, is like specifically look at uh, a policy itself. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, everybody's talking about defunding the police. It's what's hot in the streets right now. Um, <laughs> and for very good reason. And I think that um, there's been a lot of talk in an exciting way about how defunding the police really is a climate policy. So I've got two pieces here that I wanted to read from to kind of frame up this this part of the conversation. The first is um, Defunding the Police is an Environmental Justice Issue by Drew Costley. Police create types of pollutions that people don't normally think about. Money that funds police, as she notes, can be used to improve the environment, and the mere presence of police in communities of color can be considered an environmental stressor. The kinds of pollution that law enforcement agencies bring into communities include noise pollution created by sirens and cars, light pollution from floodlights and high crime areas, and emissions from police vehicles that are constantly driving around. Because black communities and communities of color are often heavily policed, They are the people who must bear the burden of this pollution. And the second is from uh, Tamara Tulls O'Loughlin, who is the head of North America at um, 350.org, called, If you care about the planet, you must dismantle white supremacy. The call to defund police isn't that much of a stretch from divestment from the fossil fuel industry, a commonly accepted rallying cry in many environmental advocacy circles, Divestment from fossil fuels is seen as a smart response to climate risk. It's about building a world of solutions with investment in community care and repair, such as green jobs and infrastructure, human health-centered resources, and recovery for those most impacted by the climate crisis. And it's not just about carbon emissions. Racism is deeply embedded in the business model of the fossil fuel industry. In order to extract resources, there are always sacrifice zones usually black, indigenous, or other communities of color that are put in harm's way and plunged into a violent and multi-generational cycle of economic disinvestment. The history of devastation and the disproportionate impacts of the climate crisis on people of color are well known. For those reasons and more, we didn't just call for leaders to regulate the fossil fuel industry. We call for it to be dismantled for the sake of a livable future. Similarly, calls to defund the police are about reducing the scope, size, and role of ineffective and racist law enforcement in favor of investment in education, healthcare, trauma, healing work, and community solutions. The idea is the same. Make way for a world of visionary care by repairing harms caused by the communities made vulnerable by business as usual. So I know that you've all also written about this, um, and Jeff Dembecki has also written about it in Vice. Mm-hmm how these things are just not, they're not different. 
they're not only like analogous, like they're legit the same thing. Mm-hmm. The invest divest framework from the Movement for Black Lives policy platform, I think, just puts this so yeah. well mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in investing in the, the types of things that make communities safe, uh, which is not fossil fuels and uh, it's not policing, right. right? It's, you know, healthcare, education, these like low carbon parts of the economy um, that is often work done by people of color and done by women. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting yeah. to me, too, that like the the reaction, you know, 10 years ago to to divestment was so similar to the reaction I see people having to defund the police now. It was, it's like this, well, yeah. you don't expect the fossil fuel industry to just go away. Yeah, I do, actually. Right. Yes, I do. Um, and yeah. now, you know. that, that actually, that reminds me of that essay from uh, Chris Hayes, The New Abolitionism, yes. where he talks about like divestment as the new yeah. abolitionism and how... Once upon a time, you know, during slavery, people were like, wait a second, like, we can't exist without slavery. Right. We need free labor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they did find a way around that. There's prisons. Uh, so, you yeah. know, very similar. Uh, straight line. Real straight. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, just like how it's just when you are in the middle of something, I'm just going to say evil, <laughs> it's hard to imagine something else yeah. because you're just so in inside of it um it's yeah it's, it's interesting um also i just want to point out from drew's piece um it was really interesting to hear him bring up like the pollution that police yeah, like the direct generate. pollution yeah mm-hmm. that was interesting yeah yeah I hadn't thought about that at all. I thought, too, that, um, Kate, your thing about um, the funding was important to mention, too, that, like, you know, one of the things we hear all the time about um, transition and green jobs and all of this stuff is is the cost thing, right? But then look at mm-hmm. what we're spending on policing. We, we have a story coming out in Drill later this week that, like, about the, um, the inmate firefighters in Arizona, which get mm. far less coverage oh, yeah. than the inmate firefighters in California. Um, and they actually have, they use more imprisoned firefighters in Arizona than f- free, like paid firefighters, which blows my freaking mind. Wow. Like that's crazy, you know? So this, I don't know, this idea that like, um, is that a new development? No, it's not new. It's just like, I don't think it's been reported. I haven't seen it anywhere. Yeah. And I was wondering Arizona is one yeah. of the places where they're having more and more wildfires that are bigger and bigger every year. And they're going right. to need more and more of this. And guess what? They're, they're like funding the, the forest management department, which is what pays for firefighting <laughs> less and less. And the, the department of, uh, whatever prisons and whatever they call it, the prison system more and more. Okay, so I want to talk about this eco-modernism and degrowth stuff. Actually, kind of related to what we were just talking about, because I feel like essentially they have very different views on capitalism and the role of capitalism in solving mm-hmm. a lot of our problems today. <laughs> um, that's a real boiled down like assessment of the these two theories. But um, but you know, there's been I've been seeing more and more of this uh, popping up in the media. Uh, around the conversation um, dealing with Planet of the Humans, which was the Michael Moore documentary. Now we have this book from 
Michael Schellenberger called Apocalypse Never. And we also have a book from John Lomborg called (laughs) False Alarm. Both of those books are arguing that people are just freaking out. Publishing is so good. I I mean, you know, um, Apocalypse Never is a bestseller now. So there's been a little bit of a... um, a little bit of a like not even wanting to engage with it, I think, thing in in the the ranks of environmental journalists, which I completely understand because mm-hmm. having read it and interviewed him, like it it takes a lot of time to parse because he's very good at, at like including just enough true things t- that you can't just dismiss it out of hand, you know. Um, but the so Amazon like, is on is like burning up. The Arctic is on fire, yeah. girl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but his thing, I mean, the, the whole thing, I really, I think, you know, the, the eco-modernist movement was really born out of this idea that environmentalists were being dumb about, um, you know, wholeheartedly dismissing nuclear energy as part of the solution on climate. And I actually don't totally disagree with that. I think that, like, there was some holdover from early environmentalists that... Mm-hmm you know, we're very anti-nuclear for for um, good reason in some cases, you know, uh, in reaction to things that had happened at like Three Mile Island and various other big nuclear disasters, Chernobyl, um, you know, which is now an HBO mm-hmm. docuseries uh, or whatever, miniseries. And nuclear and war. nuclear war, right? Like, I mean, even... I'm I'm a you know like a young Gen Xer and even when I was going through school there were a lot of of like um, there was a lot of discussion around the potential for nuclear war and how scary that was so um, that was a real part of the environmental movement for a very long time and so both Michael Schellenberger and Ted Nordhaus who co-founded the Breakthrough Institute in the early 2000s kind of came out against what they called big green. And one of their big arguments was that you guys are being dumb about technology and you're being dumb about nuclear. Um, so, you know, that's where, I, that's where I'm saying, like, there's certain aspects of, uh, of Schellenberger's book where I, I don't totally disagree that, like, the environmental movement's mm-hmm. stance on nuclear has been problematic, you know. But for some reason, he feels the need to, like... Uh, kind of undermine everything the environmental movement has ever done and then, you know, paint this idea that climate change is, like, not that big of a problem in order to get to his ultimate final solution, which is, like, nuclear uh, powering everything. And I don't know. I almost get the sense that he's, like, if people ignore climate change long enough, they'll have to do nuclear in a big way because that'll be the only solution, (laughs) you know? Yeah, but, like, aren't we there? Yeah, but that's actually – so that is actually an argument that both Nordhaus and Schellenberger have been making, which is if you guys really thought that we were in the dire straits that you're saying, you would all be rabid pro-nuclear advocates, and you're not, therefore you're full of shit. That is like a big part of their argument. Oh, my gosh. This is definitely one of those cases of going so far to the left that you come right the fuck back around on the right. It's like crazy uncles with money. Yes. That is a big part of it. Now, a big part of their whole thing, too, is that, look, guys, if we we can just use technology to solve all of these problems and to not have to deal with any of the social things and let the market solve it. That's another, like, big 
argument that they propose. And that's where I feel like they really butt up against the degrowth guys who are like, no, there are natural limits to growth. We need to uh, self-impose those limits or else nature will do it for us. And, um, you know, you can't just have this sort of like endless economic growth. Actually, like Ted Nordhaus recently told me that he doesn't believe in, in endless growth. That's the first time I've heard any of them say that. <laughs> Interesting. So we'll see. Maybe mm. they're evolving their thinking on that. I don't know. But um, but anyway, the reason I wanted to talk about it was that, you know, I keep seeing references to these things pop up in media stories. And if you don't have this, like, whole background of the last 15 years of these guys, <laughs> then there's a lot of stuff that you can miss about what they're proposing. There's an open question for me, which is you know, slightly conspiratorial, but it's just like, who is, I don't know who funds the Breakthrough right. Institute. Um, and would be very curious to find out. I mean, even on their own terms, like, uh, yeah, I just, I just find it so great. It's like, yeah, so there, there's definitely um, some weird stuff. Like there's, you know, um, Breakthrough Guys end up doing a lot of stuff with the Genetic Literacy Project, which is like a pro-GMO group funded by Monsanto, for example. And I'm I'm sort of like, mm-hmm. where does that even come into play with, with climate? Again, it's like a bunch of people who have a ton of money and time on their hands, like sitting in a college dorm room, theorizing about the world, but they have like way more influence and power than, than most, you know? It's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I yeah. I have been like kind of freaked out by this like new wave of climate denial and delay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um like even just starting with the Michael Moore film. Yeah. There's like a batch of it, right? It's a fucking bestseller. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's really it's creepy because I feel like people want to give up when it comes to climate. Like because it is such a big and scary and hard problem. Yeah. It, if someone mm-hmm. comes along and says actually it's not that it's bad. So it's so appealing. It's so like yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, "Oh, Okay, well, I guess I can go binge my Netflix series or whatever, or focus on whatever other problem. Right. It kind of like reminds me of like that David Wallace Wells piece from back in December where he said like, oh, actually, maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was, but it's still really fucking bad. Yeah. And like all of these people kind of glommed on to it being like, see, they were overreacting. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh exactly. When the reality is that... Um, Yes, it's avoidable, but that doesn't mean that it will be easy to avoid the most catastrophic consequences. And there's just no, like, there's nothing really that could come out now which would disprove, like, the basic point, which is that we need to decarbonize Mm -hmm. as quickly as humanly possible. Like, there Mm -hmm. are, you know, are debates within... the scientific community because it's a community premised on debate. That's exactly, what the scientific process exactly. is. I mean, that's such a huge problem too. I think like the vast majority of people have no understanding of how science works or how scientists communicate. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that debate and uncertainty are like key aspects of every scientific conversation, <laughs> you know? Right. 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 And how it's been weaponized. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just creates this like uncomfortable thing where like, you know, I I find the the sort of phrase like believe science. Right. There's this sort of like religious quality to it that that sort of um, turns me off. But it's I mean it's just so it it's so polarized. Like yeah, you need to defend 
scientist in some way, but also that's, it's not exactly like what I think, you know, thoughtful scientists um, argue necessarily. And just navigating that nuance is just so funny. Yeah. But yeah, no, I wanted to talk about this piece in Time Magazine by Justin Worland. I think it was it's actually pretty stellar. It's a cover story for their July issue. Um, is it well one of their July issues because I think they're weekly. It's called "It's a Defining Moment in the Fight Against Climate Change." But before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about a concept that Kate introduced into the climate lexicon last year called the climate sad boy. <laughs> um, Kate, can you explain for our listeners who have not read that piece what is a climate sad boy? Yeah, and to start off, I should give credit to my co-author, Alyssa Battistoni, who I think may have actually coined that term. <laughs> oh, um, okay. So just to, to give fair, yeah. fair credit where it's due. Um, a sad boy, a climate sad boy, um, I would define as a set of mostly white male authors who have looked at the climate crisis you know, read some PDFs or something and come to the conclusion that there's nothing we can do. So, and and feel really bad about that, like are, are very sad about the fact that there is nothing that can be done. And so conclude from there that we should just, um, we is an interesting term there because um, I think the we that they use is, um, mainly, mainly talking about them um, mm-hmm. and, and their sort of particular place in the world, uh, but that you know, it's just time to accept, accept our fate, and as Jonathan Franzen suggested in a, in a New Yorker article from two years ago, I think at this point, maybe 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 it was last year, but uh, to to just harvest our community gardens, just find things that give you meaning in the short term, and just you know. Any any attempt to, to sort of mitigate climate change is, is a lost cause, and so let's just settle down and and, and 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 accept accept what's coming. And you know, here is my five thousand word essay that I got fifty thousand dollars to write um, about that concept. <laughs> um. Yeah, and I kind of think that that piece might have killed the era of the climate sad boy. Um, God, I hope so. I, be so. I haven't seen as many. That would be my greatest achievement as a writer. Yeah, honestly. I haven't seen a lot of sad boy, you know, manifestos circulating out there. And that's why I wanted to put it into context or into conversation with this piece from Justin, who is not a climate sad boy. He's also black. He's a black writer. And so it's the first time I've ever seen a black writer have a cover story in a major magazine about climate. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that he approaches it is just wildly different from what you just described. Um, So I'm just going to read a not-so-quick excerpt. Okay, so the title of this piece is It's a Defining Moment in the Fight Against Climate Change. We're standing at a climate crossroads. The world has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius since the Industrial Revolution. If we pass 2 degrees Celsius, we risk hitting one or more major tipping points where the effects of climate change go from advancing gradually to changing dramatically overnight, reshaping the planet. To ensure we don't pass that threshold, we need to cut emissions in half by 2030. 
Climate change has understandably fallen out of the public eye this year as the coronavirus pandemic rages. Nevertheless, this year, or perhaps this year and next, is likely to be the most pivotal yet in the fight against climate change. We've run out of time to build new things in old ways, says Rob Jackson, an Earth System science professor at Stanford University and the chair of the Global Carbon Project. What we do now will define the fate of the planet and human life on it for decades. The time frame for effective climate action was always going to be tight, but the coronavirus pandemic has shrunk it further. Scientists and policymakers expected the green transition to occur over the next decade, but the pandemic has pushed 10 years of anticipated investment in everything from power plants to road trips into a months long time frame. Countries have already spent 11 trillion to help stem the economic damage from COVID-19. They could spend trillions more, it's in the next six months that recovery strategies are likely to be formulated and the path is set, says Nicholas Stern. We don't know where the chips will fall. Will a newfound respect for science and a fear of future shocks lead us to finally wake up? Or will the desire to return to normal overshadow the threats lurking just around the corner? Hmm. So, yeah, what I think is so incredibly different from what you get from the climate sad boy is that he's able to live in the uncertainty. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. the sad boy always has to know exactly how the movie's going to end. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely somebody you don't want to watch a movie with ever. Yes. Yeah. It's just so, it, I mean, the, the, the piece is so good. And, and just to to reiterate basically it's just that like yeah so you can know all of these things and not say the world is going to end and that you are like the unique holder of that knowledge right Right. some sort of oracle right right Right. yeah we know what the solutions are you know Mm -hmm. right it's it's not a big it's never been a lack of solutions actually (laughs) yeah Right. Because even though like solar and wind have grown exponentially over the past, you know, couple of decades, that was with massive underinvestment. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if we had actually invested like we if we put our minds to it, like we really could solve this problem. And I know I'm saying we, but I really mean they. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the big corporations and the decision makers. That's what I'm talking about. Her rerouted, you know, fossil fuel subsidies to. Yeah. Clean energy. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. Easy, easy stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the, I mean, part of the thing that I think that that piece you just read from really hits at that the sad boys are so, are so bad at is that like, I think they imagine that there's this like cutoff point mm-hmm. after which, that we've already crossed probably in, in most of their views after which like, well, it's over. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Okay. That's yeah. it. Time to like, time to give up. Right. Um, but that's just not how the, the, Climate works. Right. That's not how anything <laughs> like, works. Yeah. No. That is the like most punk ass reaction to anything. <laughs> is, I think right? like, oh, it's too hard now. Fuck yeah. it. I really think right. it's like this. This, um, and I feel like this with the the eco modernists too. The mad boys and the sad boys. It's that it's honestly <laughs> yeah. it's white men who are so used to having control over their lives. <laughs> Like, butting Mm -hmm. up against their very first experience of things being wildly out of their control and no one asking them to decide what the solution is. And they're just fucking wilding out about it. You know? Like... Right. Yeah. Right. And on the other end of the mad boys and the sad boys are also, I will posit, the glad boys. (laughs) Who also get on my nerves. (laughs) 
everything's gonna work out we've mm-hmm. like we've got this under control once it gets really bad they'll fix it blah 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 blah. like because they're also not used to people not caring about their lives right so like they can't <laughs> fathom this idea that like no one's coming to save to me, them surely someone will fix it yes exactly yes, exactly yeah yeah. Right? Like, they're not... So they think the problem is, like, like, oh, there's solutions, and people just don't know about the solutions. We just have to tell them about the <laughs> solutions. And then they... <laughs> You know, and then the glad boy becomes a sad boy when they realize that, oh, they don't care oh, fact, about the solutions. There are entrenched yeah. systems of power that don't always benefit me. Hmm. What? Okay. <laughs> how did that... How did that happen? It's so oh. psychological. It's just, like, such a... It is. I don't know. Most people just go to therapy. Certain, a certain, like, <laughs> certain subset of white guys, like, imposes their theories on the world, you know? And it's like, God, if you guys just could deal with, like, processing your emotions on your own, that would be mm-hmm. great. <laughs> no, psychiatry is a green job. I think everyone, yeah. everyone should have, a, have, have access to therapy under a green ideal. Yeah. That's yeah. My, my take. Also, yeah, if you think your emotions are facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A friend of mine put it, I think, well about this dynamic, which is that if you're like a very, you know, financially secure, uh, well-heeled white man, there just are not that many threats to your, you know, exactly. your survival. So you scan the horizon and then like the thing that you see is climate change. Mm-hmm. And that just really sets you off on a very strange journey. Yes. Very strange ideas. Totally. Yes. On that note, Kate, thank you for joining us for this very hot, hot take. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. In more ways than one. I'm uh, I'm glad we've we've defined we've defined the various types of boys. (laughs) All right. Well, um, thanks, Kate, for taking all this time. We appreciate it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. I was on on your podcast, Hot and Bothered, mm-hmm. back when, I don't even know when, because time is not a real thing. It could anymore. be five years or three days ago. It could be. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we talked a lot about the Bernie Sanders campaign, which it, at that time, I think, just kind of come to an end. Um, and since then, I've done some research on... Um, the Bernie Sanders campaign and Bernie Sanders as a person. So I thought I'd just do like a quick lightning round on things you may not know about Bernie Sanders. Well, and we'll see how you do. I probably okay. won't know a lot of them, but that's great content. <laughs> okay. All right. One, why does Bernie Sanders hate icebergs? Uh, <laughs> um, I can only assume he is a fan of the movie Titanic. Mm, no, it's because only the top 1% can stay above water. <laughs> wow. Um, a deep cut. A deep cut of a fact. Yeah. What's Bernie Sanders' favorite modern technology? Mm. Um, I, I, I don't even know where to start. Uh, a, an electric car. 
Mm -mm. Socialist media. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I can tell I'm killing right Keep now. Keep it going. Keep it going. Uh, yeah. Why did Bernie Sanders' chicken restaurant throw out so much food? This is whatever the answer is, it'll probably get wrong. I think we'll be good. You don't want to try? Are you giving um, up? No. Why did it? Uh, why did they throw out so much food? Because there are um, too many vegetarians in Burlington. Mm -hmm. No, uh, he only sold left wings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why doesn't Bernie Sanders like hand sanitizer? Uh, it is produced by the fossil fuel industry. That would be better. Um, but no, because it protects the 0.01%. This is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is true. Um, okay, there's only three more. <laughs> What's Bernie Sanders' favorite insurance company? You can do this one, I promise. State Farm. Progressive. Oh. <laughs> That's part of the mid in the day, my brain is just not not wired for yeah. this. Yeah, See, it's the caffeine. Kate's it's doing the caffeine. I'm, I'm trying to do, which is like trying to guess the actual answers to the dead. No, no, no. I've, 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 I've passed that point. I've yeah. passed that point. <laughs> okay. Was there a good turnout at the Bernie Sanders rally? Yes. There were a lot of people, but I wouldn't say it was super packed. Get it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. Last one. Why is Bernie Sanders always mad at his phone at the end of the day? Would you like a clue? Yes. The answer is numerical. It's always a it's, it's always a 1%. Yes. yes. It's a 1%er. <laughs> I got one. I got, got one. He got it. I feel so proud of myself. <laughs> great conversation yeah like I learned a lot about degrowth and eco-modernism and all the different ways that you can cover climate and politics and race and you don't need to separate them and if you do separate them you're probably not covering any of them completely yeah yeah totally what I like about Kate is that she's never like she kind of started out in activist organizations and she never really felt the need to even pretend to be mm -hmm. quote unquote objective as a journalist. But actually I think she does incredibly meticulous reporting. So like it's, yeah, right. it's a good combination of things. And also yeah. it was fun to talk about sad boys, mad boys, glad boys, and bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to develop that bad boy thing. Yeah. So thank you so much to Kate for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow her on Twitter. She's at Kate Aronoff. 
Aronoff is A-R-O-N-O-F-F. Um, and keep up with her reporting over at The New Republic. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Real Hot Take, and I'm at Amy Westervelt, and Mary is at Mary Hegler. <laughs> and if you haven't heard, we have a newsletter, and it is fabulous. Um, we realize that the climate story is too big and overarching to really cover it all with just the podcast um, in any sort of depth. Mm-hmm. So we launched this baby back in May, and we've been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, that's right. We're really enjoying just sort of, you know, going off when we feel like it adding new reporting Mm -hmm. stuff when we find it. It's great. And we are able to do little bonus episodes on there as well. If you subscribe, you not only get access to original features by Mary and myself, you also get bonus content for both the podcast and even like in between little bonus episodes. Right. And there's like a roundup of all the best climate coverage for the week. Yeah. We're very proud of it, if yeah. you can't tell. Yes. Um, we have a premium version with all the fun features for as little as $7 a month or $80 a year. Or if you really love us, you can sign up for a founding membership at $210. That's right. And with the founding membership, you also get a free t-shirt. What? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's not free if you're paying $210. Anyway, we yeah, understand. It's a really special t-shirt. Yeah. We understand yeah. that not everyone can do that right now totally get it everyone's financial situation is different at the moment and we firmly believe that we should not keep this content behind a paywall so we produce a free newsletter too that has the roundup of weekly coverage at least one free feature from us and teasers for all of the other stuff in the premium newsletter plus we are committed to keeping this podcast free for everyone so still a lot of content for all yeah Exactly. Right. And every week we do at least one giveaway for premium memberships on Twitter. So make sure that you stay tuned for those. Maybe like turn on notifications. I don't know if that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know because they go fast still. It's great. Yeah. They do. Also, as I mentioned before, t-shirts. We do have merchandise now. We've got hats and shirts and mugs, and we're getting even more things all the time. Thanks to everyone who stayed patient with us while we shipped our first order. We had some UPS purgatory drama, but they're out now, and we're loving seeing all the pictures that you guys are sending, so keep those up. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to get my shirts because as much as I love seeing everybody with the shirts on, like I've got major FOMO over here. <laughs> and it just sort of seems like UPS oh. hates me specifically. And it's like, what did I do? You know, know. like, how can I make it up to you? I like, know. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what it was, but I'm sorry. It's true. It's starting to feel really personal. But it was a week late coming <laughs> to me, too. I don't understand it. But, you know, I suppose we're not, you know, supplying masks to hospitals so i can't complain (laughs) exactly exactly and like you know the ups has been through a lot lately so we appreciate you UPS. yes yes all right that's it for this episode um our next guest is going to be brian khan he's the managing editor over at earther if you have questions for him about climate narratives or the media landscape or something he's written or published um, please send them to hot takes at criticalfrequency.org that's hot takes plural at criticalfrequency.org that's right and you can also send us your suggestions for other guests or other show theme suggestions there as well all right we'll talk to y'all again soon bye
best sign off ever. Yeah. The other one I was considering was keep fucking that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. Oh my god, it's so good. <laughs> but I didn't know if anybody else would get it. Oh man. <laughs> That also would have been Welcome hilarious if we were like, hey, hotcakes, keep fucking that chicken. <laughs> what is this show? Because <laughs> it's better than fucking a cow. <laughs> so good. cows have ambitious. Get it. So good. Get it. So good. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah.